So as you know, we started this new series entitled Thinking. And our hope with this is that you are able to take your mind to a level that you may not have before. Last week, we talked about the meaning of life. But in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, it says, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Now, as believers, we do a fantastic job of having a good relationship with Jesus when the heart is happy. We do really well, meaning that whenever our heart's happy, our faith is happy. We do a really good job that when our heart is good, our lives are good. When our heart's good, then my relationship with Jesus feels really, really good. But my question is, is what happens when the heart doesn't match anymore? What happens whenever the bad things happen? Can I, can I be honest with you guys today? Today's a very difficult day for me. My brother, my brother's birthday is today, and he passed away three years ago. And so the, on days like today, I'm reminded of how hard that season of life was for me. Because not only did I lose my brother on a Wednesday and have a funeral for him on Monday, but I was welcoming the three-year-old that you're going to hear talking throughout this whole service 10 days later. And I sit back and I wonder how, and I remember getting in the car and asking God, how can I do this? How can I mourn the life of one guy and then celebrate the life of my daughter and still process you being good? And he made it pretty simple for me. He said, Philip, do your life circumstances dictate my goodness? And no. My circumstances, what I have to deal with, meaning what you're going through, they don't change the goodness of God even when it's hard to remember, to remember that. God's not less good because your situation is less good. He's more good because he can make good the circumstances that are awful. And every time I look at my three-year-old, I'm reminded of that. So whenever we read the scripture here in Mark chapter 12, where it says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and your soul and your strength, he's saying, I don't just want your heart when you're good. I want every ounce of you every single day. I want every ounce of you no matter what it is. So whenever you say that you feel happy, well, what happens when you're, when you're not as happy? Do you still believe that I'm good? Whenever your, your, your brain is, is fried and you're worn out and you're exhausted, do you still know that I'm good? And whenever your soul is exhausted, do you rely on yourself to strengthen it or do you rely on me? And through this thinking series, we're trying to get you all and understand something. I just wrapped up my, uh, Luke and I just wrapped up our masters in apologetics. And please know something. I hate school. Every ounce of it. Middle school. My mom and my dad were just like, Philip, get a C. And I said, I'll see you there. I can do that. And so middle school, C. High school, I tried a little bit harder, but I still didn't really care. My undergrad at Johnson Bible College, I did well enough. I had Greek. Didn't turn out well, but I passed, okay? I did it. But then when I got my master's, I realized something. I actually cared about the information. So things changed. And whenever you start taking your brain and you start stretching it, and you start trying to understand really difficult concepts, if you care about it enough, it'll permeate from you. It'll just kind of become who you are and not something you do. And that's a lot easier said than done. 
And if we don't understand something, we have this really bad misconception that we've messed up, that we're not smart enough, that we're not good enough. But I'm here to encourage you. I don't have this up here, but I I do want to say this. In Mark chapter 7, it tells the story of Jesus. And it says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Notice, Jesus was speaking in a parable so that the people of that time could understand what he was saying. And also notice that the people he was talking to weren't the ones who asked him to explain. It was his closest disciples. The struggle that we have is that when we have questions, when we have doubts, when we have struggles of faith, we think the struggles are the struggle that we, that we have. Like we think that the struggles, I've said struggles like too many times. We think that just because we have the questions, we're in the wrong. And Jesus simply says, your questioning isn't wrong, living in those questions is. Because God can reveal himself in ways that stretch your mind to remind you just how good he is. Having questions isn't wrong. Letting the questions destroy your faith can. And that's exactly what the devil wants. So when we're going through this series, understand that if something seems uncomfortable, if something seems maybe a little bit off base, and and I think she said it in the video, is that how can I believe something in my heart if I don't believe it in my head? And Jesus never said that. What Jesus says, I want you to love me with your heart and your mind because I made both of them. And the world may tell you something else, but what scripture tells you is so much more than that. So much more than that. So maybe you're here today and you're, you have questions about your spiritual journey, but you're good. That's how I was from through middle school and high school and all the way up through my college. My dad's a minister. He's, at a, he's a minister of a really small church down in uh, where we grew up in Princeton, West Virginia. And I, God loved my parents because I wouldn't be here if not for them. But I never had questions. I was good. I was on the whole like faith journey, like everything felt good. I may have had some struggles in my faith, don't get me wrong, but overall I was solid. It wasn't until I moved back here back in 2016, that I had ever heard the word apologetics. I said, is that a dirty word? Like, what is that? So then you go through this journey of what apologetics is, and then the longer you go through the journey, and I said this to my wife, I said, getting our apologetics degree taught me something. I have more questions than I ever had answers. And guess what? That's not a bad thing. Because when we have questions, God has the chance to show himself through the answers. We're just scared to ask and to seek. And if we're being honest, we're lazy. Am I right? We're lazy. So maybe you're in here and you're like, listen, my faith's good. I don't have questions. Eventually you will be challenged. We are, uh, we are pretty sheltered here in West Virginia. But the moment that we get out and about, understand something. People were going to challenge you based off of your faith. Whenever I was doing our thesis for our master's, I did mine on deconstruction and, and how it leads to, to uh, deconversion. And do you know that 68% of high schoolers who move away to college will spend at least a season away from the church. And the statistics for them coming back aren't much higher. 68%. And we sit back and say, no, 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 that's fine. Let's, let's preach feel-good sermons to make them walk away and say, that's good. That's good. You've walked away on a Sunday and you feel better about yourself. 
And instead of building a foundation on truth that will feed you whenever the heart doesn't match the mind. That means that whenever something doesn't feel good in my life, do I still have a truth to stay grounded in, even when it's hard? And that's what we're hoping for this in the series, is that even if you don't have questions, we want to give you reasons to believe. Maybe you're in here and you're not sure what you believe. I'm hoping that these, these conversations are opportunities for you to see God, to see Jesus in a way that you haven't experienced before. Maybe it's your first time asking these questions or having these questions. Please understand that if you walk away and you're confused, don't stay confused. Talk to somebody. Give that, let that be an opportunity that, that, that we can help each other because these conversations today are meant to extend throughout the week and throughout our lives. That's why we're calling this the thinking series. Regardless, we want to equip the church. Last week, we talked about the meaning of life. And we came to the conclusion that without God, our meaning of life is very subjective. It's whatever we want it to be. And that's no way to live. And today we're talking about, does God exist? Being a student ministry for 10 plus years now, which is insane to say, 10 plus years, I understand that kids are okay to admit, students are okay to admit that there is a God. They don't have a problem with that. But where the conversation gets a little bit more tense is when they say, why should I follow this dude named Jesus? Because they understand it's really hard to argue against the existence of God, but what separates him from any other religion out there? What separates him from what I've actually been taught throughout school? Today, we're gonna hit just on simply, does God exist? How do we know that there is a creator who created us? How do we know that the world just didn't pop into existence? And that's gonna be our center of focus. And when you read the Bible, the assumption that God exists is there. I mean, that whenever you read scripture, they didn't really argue about the existence of God directly because they assumed it. For instance, in Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, God created. In Psalm chapter 14, it says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And if we keep going through um, here in Psalm chapter uh, uh, 14, it says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand and who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Which leads us to say this. Many people who want to deny the existence of God are thinking more through a moral lens than an intellectual. Meaning that the reason we want to argue that there's not a God is because when I look out at the world and I see all the evil and all the pain and all the suffering, all the death, all the bad, it doesn't feel like there's a very good God in that. Whenever you lose a loved one, it's hard to see the goodness of God in that. Whenever you turn on the news or when you open social media, there's a lot of reasons to be upset about this goodness of God because it doesn't really feel it, right? But like I said, our life circumstances do not change the goodness of God. Meaning what we're going through doesn't change God's character. And aren't we grateful for that? Isn't that a good thing? Because if our circumstances change the goodness of God, then God couldn't be all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere. He couldn't be. So if our heart seems off from our mind, then it's probably not God, it's us. Because we have taken 
an objective truth, and we've made them subjective to us. So obviously, like we see here in Psalm, we can't just walk up to somebody and say, you're a fool. You're dumb for not believing in God. Is that very effective? Trust me, being, doing middle school ministry, I say you're dumb a lot. And they say it to me, so it's fine. It's, it's, it's conclusive around each other, okay? So what do we do? Well, number one, understand, we are to live our lives like we really believe that God exists. Looking at my computer, you can see I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. It's a sad life. My dad told me very early on how sad it was going to be. Matter of fact, in 1999, I went to a game with him. I really liked this player named Quincy Morgan. He was a wide receiver. The next morning, my dad pulls me into his room and says, hey, you know Quincy Morgan? I said, yeah, he's my favorite player. I knew him for like two days. My dad said, hey, they traded him. I said, what do you mean? He's like, he's not on the Browns anymore. And he said, get used to it, son. The Browns are going to get your hopes up just to tear you down. Very early on in, my, in a conversation with me, you will understand that I love Cleveland sports. I love Marvel. I love my family in no specific order. But if something matters to you, it should permeate from you. So if we are believers in here, it should be known very, very early on that we are believers. It should be, it should be known really early on in the conversation that this guy's a Christian, something's different about him, and you may not even have to say anything because it's permeating from you. Something's different about him. So if something really matters to you, it'll show. If something really matters to you, you won't have to uh, argue for it before you even start the conversation. It'll already be a part of you. So if we believe God exists, we should live a life that shows that we believe God exists. And it starts with conversations and the way you interact with people. What else should we do? Number two, equip ourselves with evidence of his existence. There are at least 20 lines of evidence that we could talk about. Lucky for you, I've only got like 10 to 15 minutes. We've only got four. And even then, we're going to be pushing it. Okay, we had a, a, one of my really, really uh, charismatic friends come and teach for us at the camp last night. My man went for like an hour and a half. I said, well, we'll see what happens tomorrow morning with me. Um, but when we talk about these lines of evidence, we need to be aware that there are going to be people who are going to make it their mission to convince you the opposite of what you believe. They're going to say, oh, you're a Christian? Why? And from then on out, your whole talk it's about arguing for one or the other. And my question is, is, are you prepared for really difficult questions? Do you feel like we have trained you well enough? Because I grew up in an amazing church. My parents did an amazing job and I had never heard the word apologetics. I wasn't ready for the discussions. Whenever I was a senior in high school, we had to do a senior project. My atheist homosexual teacher challenged me to, to defend why the Bible was true. And me and him had a great relationship. He said, I want to know. He goes, you don't have to, but I would really like for you to. So I said, absolutely, I'll do it. So I set out on this journey for the next semester of my senior year on how the Bible was composed. Didn't know what I was getting myself into. Got walked away almost more confused. And I remember that I was making a video with my, uh, for my project and I would just ask random strangers, hey, how do you believe the Bible was made? How do you believe? And we were in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I see a guy with a top hat and a trench coat. I said, I'm talking to him. So I run up to him, and I'm like, hey, can I just ask you a quick question? 
He said, absolutely. And I told him what the question was. He didn't sound angry. He didn't sound mad, didn't do anything. And I just simply started recording him. And I said, sir, how do you believe the Bible was made? He said, some dudes named Bill and Jack wrote it and said, wouldn't it be crazy if someone believed this crap? And he walked away. I said, oh, have a good day. And in that moment, you realize, oh, wait, everybody doesn't believe what I believe. In those moments, you have to be ready to say, this is what I believe and why, and to have reasons for it. I could argue for the Browns all day, but you ain't going to believe me. We could argue for anything, but does the evidence line up with it? And I'm here to say it does. So we're going to go through four quick things. Number one, biogenesis. And keep in mind, while we're going through these four things, we're arguing for the existence of God, how we know God exists. Biogenesis. Bio means life and Genesis means beginning. Hence why we, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The beginning of life. How do we know that life is from life? Can anything just pop into existence and that be it? Well, if you have a kid who asks, where did I come from? As a student minister, I say, go to your parents, don't Google it. But as a parent, I'm like, okay, I actually have to address this question. So they ask, where do you come from? So you say mommy and daddy. So whenever people would ask Philip, hey, Philip, where did you come from? I would say Jim and Patty. And then they'd be like, well, where did they come from? Well, Homer and Hazel, and then Percy and Carol. And you could go through that all the way, right? But at the beginning, there has to be a starting point. There has to be. Somebody had to be the beginning. And in Luke chapter three, he says this, and he's walking through the genealogy of Jesus. Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Cain, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, then the son of God. Luke was a doctor. So you can make the assumption that him being a doctor, he wanted to know facts. And if you read the gospel of Luke, you see that a lot of his are very detailed accounts because he wanted to know the exact details. That just seems to be part of his, his DNA. So whenever he's walking through the genealogy of Jesus, that means that we can conclude with pretty good confidence that he went through and, and confirmed it. So why does he stop at the son of God? Because something had to start it all. Something had to begin. Here's the argument. Is that biogenesis, that life can only come from life. See, centuries ago, uh, people would think that a pile of garbage uh, would produce bugs and maggots, rats, mice. That garbage would do that. Now, we're not saying produce it. We're saying, I mean, we're not saying attract it. We're saying produce it, create it. But then you have a name named Louis Pasteur, Pasteur. And you know the phrase pasteurized on your milk. Well, it came from him. This means that they took all of the living microbes that had been on the garbage and they tried to remove it. So pastor, he wanted to set out and see if this is true, meaning that, that things can just grow from trash, meaning that's it. They, it came from nothing. These things were producing it. Not attract them, produce them. So he goes through and he takes the garbage and he removes every single living thing from it. And he ensures it. So it's still trash, but there's no living organism. There's no uh, bacteria on it. It's all gone. And so he sticks it in the sterile environment and he wants to wait and wait and wait and see if the maggots and if the, the flies, if they would grow. And the longer he waited, nothing grew. Nothing changed. Meaning it was just trash, which showed 
it attracted it, it couldn't produce it. And it became this thing called spontaneous generation. And it was disproven. And now it's became the theory of biogenesis, meaning life can only come from life. How, if, if the earth was created from nothing, why can't we create something from nothing today? Why can't we see something as simple as dirt just pop into existence? If things could come from nothing, we would see it more right now. So the argument is life can only come from life. Number two, design. Now, let's say that I'm walking by myself and I see this letter with my name on it. And then I open it and I see two tickets to my perfect vacation. And I'm not saying money for a vacation. I'm saying my perfect vacation. I'm in this phase where I'm, I'm enjoying the mountains a little bit more than the beach. It's going to change at the summer. Don't worry. But, I, but let's say I open it and it says that I have two tickets to, the, to a secluded house in the middle of nowhere. The Cleveland Browns have just won the Super Bowl. The Cavaliers have just won the NBA title. The Guardians have just won the MLB World Series. My three-year-old is perfect. She has said nothing wrong. Her attitude is great. It's just the three of us, and we have this perfect vacation lined out for us. Now, what are the odds that that was just lucky? That it was just by chance? Meaning that I'm just walking in this place by myself. I see this letter with my name on it, with my perfect vacation. What are the, what are the odds that it's just a lucky thing for me? Slim to none, right? And yet we look at the universe and the way that it reacts. We look at our bodies and the way that they work. And we want to assume that it was simply by chance. Whenever somebody has a heart problem, meaning they're about to have a heart attack, you can feel it in numerous ways. You can feel it in your arm, in your lower back. You can feel fatigued. Obviously, you can pass out. And if one little thing is off inside of your body, your body temperature changes. And if you get from 98.6 to 99 to 100, you don't feel good. Our bodies work in such a way that it's really coincidental if there isn't a God, that they work the way that they do. Think about the birthing process alone and how many things have to go perfectly for a perfect birth. Think about the way that we are made that whenever you don't get enough rest, your body forces you to get rest at some point down the line. Think about the way that our thumbs work. Think about the way that our eyes work and how many specific things, like whenever we look at our eyes, there's no machine that can copy exactly what the eye sees. Meaning that whenever I go out and I see something gorgeous or I see something beautiful, I can't explain it, you have to experience it and no picture can show it. We look at the world and we see how much design there actually is. Charles Darwin says this, to suppose that the eye with all of its unique controversies are for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correct, uh, correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I confess, absurd in the highest degree. Darwin was an obvious atheist, and he is saying that the eye alone, just being a natural selection, meaning just complete chance shot in the dark, it's absurd at best. He couldn't even argue a good reason to think that somebody didn't create the way that the eye works. Antony Flew is another well-known atheist who actually um, denounced his atheism and said that it was most likely 
a God. After arguing with guys like William Lane Craig or Gary Habermas, two huge well-known Christian apologists, and it was the argument of the design of the world that changed Anthony Flew's opinion on his worldview. One of my professors, one of Luke and I had had a professor that wrote this, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, and Boyle, they were all key players in the scientific revolution. And all five of them saw the attributes of the cosmos as indicators of a wise creator in whose image we are made. They didn't try to argue away God. They said, this is how God used his, his image, who he was to create the world. They saw it as their duty in life to not argue God away, but to prove the existence of God through the creation. And the world is trying to tell us the opposite now is that we need to use every argument possible to disprove God. And the longer that time goes on, the arguments only get stronger for Christianity, not for atheism. In Psalm chapter 19, verses one through two, it says this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. If there is a design, we have to assume there was a designer. And number three, and quite possibly my favorite one, is morality. If I were to ask you what is right and what is wrong, what is morality, you would say something along the lines of, well, if we say that someone is moral, then they are living within a universal standard that we all agree on. If we say someone is immoral, then we're saying that somebody is living outside of those standards. It's mine, don't worry. It's mine. (laughs) That's right, honey, we'll get you some gummies later. But if something is moral, then they're living within the set standards. If they're immoral, they're living outside of those standards. Now, if I'm saying, okay, what are some examples? Well, we can all agree that kicking a puppy is wrong. We can all agree that hitting the person that kicked a puppy was right. We can all agree that if, if there's an elderly person who's having to lift something heavy and they're struggling, well, you can help them. We can all agree that pushing that person over is wrong. And that's just a universal standard that is born inside of us. And if somebody didn't place it inside of us, then where did it come from? Well, some people would say that culture would teach you right and wrong. That's scary, right? That's a, that's a terrifying thing to think about. If you look back at World War II with, with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, do you know that the government had their back? You want to know what's more terrifying? Is that it started in the church in Germany. They got the church to back them. The, then the church went with the government, and then that's where it all grew. It's weird what Satan can do. So if we're looking at culture, and if culture defines what's right and wrong, then why has it changed so much? If there were an absolute standard, wouldn't it be the same state no matter what? And yet, the longer that we look back, it's been a fluctuation. This is right, this is right, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong. If culture defined it, it would be a set standard. But it's not. And here's another thing. If there's not an absolute truth, well, then everything we do is simply a preference. Which means that if somebody kills somebody, if there's no absolute truth at that point, well, that person thought it was right, so it's okay. But we've already established we think it's wrong to kill. If there was no absolute truth, then the the morality inside of us would be fluctuating regularly. So when we ask, okay, well, what is the argument for the existence of God? 
Where does the innate thing inside of us define what's right and what's wrong? Why do we have that? Why is it that whenever we look at something that's hurting, whenever we look at pictures of of starving people, why does it bother us to our core? If culture said it, we wouldn't see the pictures. If we said it, meaning if Philip set those standards, well, then my selfishness would probably reign supreme. But instead, there is something born inside of you that says that's wrong. And it's because you bear the image of God. If nobody said it, then we wouldn't have it. Again, if there was a design, we have to have a designer. So we have the law. If you think about it, do we have like any need for speed people? You like to drive fast? Tim Burns, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. But think about it. If you're driving 78 in a 70 and you get pulled over, who tells you you're doing something wrong? The police, you're good. You're, you're the best driver in the world. I know Jeff Gordon. So like, you're good. But then whenever the cop pulls you over, you may try to argue it, but there's a law that you have to follow. Maybe you're at a red light and you're on your phone and you get a ticket for being on your phone. I know Jeff, I know. So who sets that law? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a law that was made by the Ten Commandments. The Israelites needed something to follow. Jesus hadn't come yet. That law wasn't there yet. So they had to make the law. If you're a new Christian, don't start in the book of Leviticus. It's very confusing. It is really, really difficult. Don't start there. Also, stay away from Revelation for a little while. We'll get there. Or just look back a couple months ago. We just did it. But when the law came, it said that there was going to be something else to fulfill it. That's when Jesus shows up and it says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So now those written laws were filtered only through what Jesus did. And so now whenever Jesus says, there is something greater than I, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And that thing that's sticking inside of you, that's poking at you, telling you what's right and what's wrong, lives inside of you. And we have this really weird thing that if we could just be the disciples and walk with Jesus, we would have it all figured out. But do you understand that the disciples would look at you and say, yeah, but you had Jesus inside of you. What was that like? And that's something to be encouraged about. Where did morality come from if not God? Number four, experience. This one is some that... A lot of apologists, a lot of Christian apologists, they, 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 they don't really like it because it's very subjective, meaning it's very unique to you. But if there's one thing that I can argue for you is that no one can argue with life change. No one can argue with life experience. And I also want to caution you that every religion has these stories. People don't become Muslims or, or, or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses if they don't have an experience for the most part. But what I think changes it is we serve a God who isn't dead. We serve a God who takes everything else from the world and he pushes it aside and says, no, focus on me, not you. So when we look at life experience, I want you to understand that those are the moments in your life that say, I had something that happened to me that I can't explain. There was a conversation that I had, a book that I read. There was a line that I read in this book or or in this story. 
For me, I was a 15-year-old kid at Christian Acre Service Camp, and I remember that somebody said, if there's anybody who wants to give a devotion, to come on up. I had never spoke in front of anybody before. I had never wanted to. I had never cared. But I remember standing up without my, underneath my own volition, and I gave a devotion. Two days later, it was the shortest devotion known to man. But I had never been sure of myself more than when I lived for Jesus and not for myself. You can't argue with life experience. You can't argue with what you've experienced. That means, and I have a couple examples here, that you've heard this still small voice that can't be explained. You may have made a decision that, you, that wasn't your typical character, meaning I'm not a very outgoing person, but I prayed out loud in front of a group because I, because I had to. I had no choice. You may have prayed for something and it happened instantly. Those are the experiences in your life that you can't explain other than God. And they are one of the strongest arguments because you can't argue them against yourself. So we have biogenesis, we have design, we have morality, and we have life experience. Have any of y'all ever been to Australia? Okay, I did for three months. And when we talk about experience, we live in a world where people will try to argue about what you have experienced. For instance, let's say that I'm in Australia and I was dating my now wife at the time. Let's say that she calls me and says, hey, where are you? I'm like, well, clearly in Australia. She says, no, you're not. Australia doesn't exist. I'm like, I'm sorry, how? And she says, well, I'm not there, so it can't be real because I haven't experienced it. The longer that we try to fight what God's trying to tell us. The longer that we try to push against what people have experienced themselves, we're talking to walls because you can't argue life experience. But understand something as well. As, I, as I'm wrapping up, if your band wants to come on up, understand something. God can reveal himself in ways that are unimaginable and unexplainable. He wants to. And the more that we sit back and we want the feel-good things, we're giving God only a portion of what he can do. And the longer that we convince ourselves that this is just who I am, this is what it is, well, we're missing it. In Psalm 42, it reads this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What I mean, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? There's so much that we could say. But today I hope you're encouraged that if you can answer these two questions, if you can answer these two quick questions to yourself, you have confidence in who Jesus is. Does God exist did Jesus do what he said he was going to do? And those two things alone will get you through some of the darkest periods of your life because you have to push yourself aside to believe them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. I know we went a little long, but God, I, you can't rush these kind of conversations. And the more that we try to convince ourselves that we're not sure, that we're unsure. God, first off, I'm, I'm grateful for anybody in here who's struggling with that because it means that they're seeking. And God, I'm praying for one of those life experiences for them. 
that they sense you in a way that just touches their inner core, that touches that soul that you have placed inside of them to say, here's how you know. And God, if there is somebody in here who knows who you are, but is struggling, God, I pray for that same experience. God, thank you for being good. And I pray strength and I pray courage and I pray, pray confidence for everybody in here. Father, thank you for your goodness. In your name I pray, amen. I'll be over here on your left. And if you have anything you want to talk about, pray about anything that I could um, help explain a little bit more, I would love to discuss that with you. Listen to that still small voice because it's dwelling inside of you. We stand in worship.